Good morning, Chapel Hill. It is good to see you. I'm Pastor Mark Toon. And I am Pastor Julie Hawkins. Welcome to this first Sunday after a remarkable Easter Sunday. You may have heard, but we had over 2,700 people who showed up here last Sunday. 25 people gave their life to Christ. We were so delighted to welcome so many new guests that we ran out of new guest gifts. We had to remake them between each service to welcome all the people who were visiting. And we had so many kids that raised their hand to give their life to Jesus that we gave away every single kid's Bible that we had and we were scrounging around for some, some more. So it was just a wonderful morning and I know that many of you are back perhaps for the first time in a long time. You have returned a second time in a row and anyway, we're walk- glad to welcome you. Pastor Julie and I are going to kick off uh, what we think is a really important sermon series for our life, our identity as a congregation. And I'll warn you up front, this is going to be one of those sermons when we are kind of digging in deep. We're looking at a lot of scripture, and so it's going to require a little effort on your part. So buckle up your pew belts. I know you're capable of this, and and buckle in because it's going to be some important work, but I, I think it will be helpful for you. Again and again over the many years that I've served here at Chapel Hill, I have heard from Chapel Hill members who move away to another community or who leave to go away to university, and they come back and say, we just can't find another Chapel Hill. And I nod my head sympathetically, thinking to myself, well, of course you can't. Every church is unique. There is no other Chapel Hill. We're all kind of got our own thing going here. But I've begun to hear it often enough that I begin to wonder, is there something that is distinctive about us as a church family? Now, of course, we're evangelical, we're conservative, we're biblical, we believe in the preached word, the importance of the preached word, but we're not that unique in that respect. Many churches would describe themselves in that way. In fact, there are many great churches right here in our own community. It's almost an embarrassment of riches of the number of churches that are available to you of that sort. Still, we begin to ask ourselves, are there some things, some qualities or some values which taken together make Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill? To put it differently, we said, what is our DNA? What is our DNA? What is it at our core? Who are we? And then through the pandemic, we saw a lot of new people coming to be a part of us from some church backgrounds, from unchurched backgrounds, and we realized that as these new folks are coming in, it's only fair that we state clearly who and what we are. And, uh, and this, that way visitors are going to have a chance to understand whether Chapel Hill really is the place that they belong or not. So we've done some work on this. We have identified nine markers that are kind of inherent to us. They're our core. They are kind of sacred to us. And when these markers are present, it feels right. If one of them were to not be present, it would feel like a violation of our code. And so over the next nine weeks, our preaching team is going to talk about our DNA, our nine inherent traits that taken together make us us. And just like human DNA, there's no changing this. This is who we are. And and you don't have to share all of these values to be a part of us. We know that some of you may not. But they really are non-negotiable for us. And we feel like it's only fair to say that right outright up front. 
So this morning, we're going to start with a marker. It isn't the most important of our distinctives, but it may be the most distinctive of our distinctives. We are, as a congregation, called egalitarian. Say that word out loud. Egalitarian. It's really a kind of a wonky and clunky word. Uh, Neither Pastor Julie nor myself love it particularly, but it is a word that in church circles people would understand what we mean. And that is that we ordain both men and women equally to the offices of the church. And of course, what's really distinctive about that part is we ordain women also to every office of the church. Egalitarian. The contrasting perspective on that is called complementarian. Say that one. Complementarian. And that means that men and women have complementary roles in the church, but women are forbidden to take leadership. That's what that means. Egalitarian, complementarian. And by the way, I'll just tell you that I was a complementarian when I was first ordained into pastoral ministry. I did not believe in the ordination of women. But they said, will you continue to study this matter? I said, I would. And by golly, as I continued to study God's word over the decades, my heart, my mind has been changed about this. I think if you know anything about Chapel Hill, it's pretty obvious that we are egalitarian. You saw it this morning. We just ordained a a bunch of women to various roles. Three of them into a role of elder of our church. This June, our very own elder, Rosemary Lukens, will become the very first moderator of our entire denomination who happens to be a woman, the very first. We sent Megan Hackman as our denomination's very first woman lead pastor of a church plant in Port Orchard. And of course, we still have two women pastors, Pastor Julie and Pastor Rachel White on our team. And in fact, we have ordained eight women pastors, among them my own daughter, Rachel, and there's a ninth in the pipeline. And that is more than any other church in our denomination. So we don't just, we're not. <laughs> Thanks for starting that clap, yeah, Linda. Thank you for that smattering of applause. <laughs> we don't just tolerate women leaders. We celebrate women leaders. We champion them. And this conviction may be our most distinctive DNA marker because you'll find other evangelical, reformed, spirit-filled churches, but not many that are also egalitarian. In fact, we know this to be true because it's one of the most frequently asked questions we get from people who are new to us. Why women leaders? And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There was a time in my life where I, like my brother Mark, I leaned complementarian. I know that's a big surprise. Because of that, I have a lot of grace for brothers and sisters who are not quite sure what they think about a woman in the pulpit, or even people who disagree. However, I also have a lot of hope that we will be able to move towards each other in love and charity. And there is a part of me that hopes that someday you'll change your mind because I changed my mind. So that is a small, I my mind. That's a small hope that I have. However, I am called to be a minister of word and sacrament. So this is not a soapbox moment for me. I am not here to win an argument with anyone. This is a call, not a cause. And our text today It is a real doozy. Yes, it is. It is one of two texts that gets quoted to me 
more often than you would think, especially after I preach. It's a little <laughs> bit awkward to hear these texts quoted back to me. In my younger days, I wish that I could just take a Sharpie and mark this text out of Scripture, because frankly, if you took a pair of scissors to this text in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, the case for women in church leadership would be pretty evident. There wouldn't be much of an argument. However, this text is part of God's inspired word to us. And by the way, this text in all of 1 Timothy 2 is a passage that I have come to love dearly. I think that it is such a beautiful part of God's word. So let's tackle it together, okay? All right. All right, hear God's word for us today. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. You know, whole books have been written about these few verses. Whole doctoral classes are taught on these three verses. Believe me, I took one. And there is no way that we can cover the breadth and the depth of this text in the time that we have allotted, but we can take a closer look. So let's start with the context of these verses. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, somebody who he loved very dearly, yeah, like a son. Like a son. Yeah. And Timothy was a church leader in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus at the time, it was a bustling metropolis brimming with wealth. In the Roman Empire, Ephesus was the place to be. It was a center of art and culture and banking and architecture and theater. And at the center of all life in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis Ephesia. This temple was the largest building in the known world. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people would travel from all over the world to come and pray to Artemis Ephesia. And she was like a mashup of a bunch of different Roman and Greek goddesses. She was the goddess of the moon, the hunt, childbirth. If Gunnar and Amy had had their baby in Ephesus, they would have prayed to this goddess. She was the goddess of fertility, but also the goddess of chastity. She was the goddess of prosperity and power and wealth. Fertility and chastity. Fertility and chastity, all in one. It's quite a resume, isn't it? But while other goddesses, they might subdue or seduce people into devotion, Artemis Ephesia would overwhelm and overpower people. She was a dominant force, and her temple was manned, or we might want to say womaned in this case, by a bunch of priestesses. These priestesses, they were daughters of wealthy Ephesians, and serving at the temple was a status symbol for them. These women, they held the keys of prosperity and wealth, fertility, and life. So in Ephesus, religious practice, it was marked by a powerful goddess and female dominance. So when Paul wrote those words, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or exercise authority over a man. It was in the shadow of this temple that was known around the world for having women who wielded an extreme amount of religious authority and where the men were spectators of worship. You can see why it's important to know that context, can't you? But we do still have these words, these words that were written by the Apostle Paul, and they are scripture, so we must take them seriously. So how do we understand what Paul is saying? Well, we of course should always start by remembering that the Bible was not written in English. It was originally written in Greek. And this is one of those places mm -hmm. where the beauty and the nuance and the tone of Greek doesn't come across in English. Our English translation just doesn't do it justice. Right. I want to point out a couple things that might surprise you about this text. First, you need to realize how revolutionary the command, yes, it was a command and it was the only command in this text that Paul made to Timothy, let a woman learn. This was a society where women were sequestered away from everybody else. If a respectable Jewish man was walking down the street and he saw a woman that he was related to, his sister or his mother or his wife, it would be considered improper for him even to say hello to her, somebody he was related to. Common women were hidden from view. They were completely separate. And they certainly were not to be trained, and they weren't always even welcomed in worship. But here, Paul commands that not only could they learn about the Christian faith, they must, they, must they should, they're commanded to be trained up in the faith. Yep. And the next surprise comes with that very controversial phrase, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. The 14 other times that the Greek word translated here, I do not permit, is, you, or is used in the New Testament. All 14 of those times refer to a temporary situation. There is a Greek word for that I never, ever, ever, ever permit situation. And we know that Paul knew that word. We know it because he used that never, ever, ever permit word seven times in First Timothy. So he knew the word and he didn't use it. Not here. Here he uses a phrase that was more likely translated, for the time being, in this situation, I do not permit. And what about that phrase, exercise authority? That word appears only here in the Bible, which means that we need to do more research to know its context and its meaning. And in contemporary Greek writings at the time, it was more commonly used to mean do not dominate, don't be overbearing, don't be a bully. It was an aggressive word, sometimes associated even with murder. So I hope that you can see that it's not quite as simple as simply saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. In fact, a better translation for these two verses might be something like, a woman must learn first as a good and quiet student. I do not permit them to take over and run the show. 
as Pastor Julie told you, this was addressed to a leader in Ephesus. I've had the chance to visit Ephesus. Some of you have joined me on uh, that trip. And uh, it's a spectacular city in modern-day Turkey. One of the most impressive archaeological discoveries that they made was this. This is the statue of Artemis. It was the statue that was actually a part of the altar uh, in the, uh, the uh, temple uh, in Ephesus. And it, it, this is the all-powerful, all-dominant goddess Artis, the, uh, God, uh, Artemis, the one to whom uh, the uh, spectacular Ephesian temple was dedicated uh, as a religion. Again, I want to remind you, it was run entirely by a cult of priestesses, it was a culture in which men were completely irrelevant. They were completely silent and were dominated by exclusively female leaders. So that was the context in which Paul is writing. We don't believe that what he was saying was that to silence all women, as some English uh, commentators would suggest. He was rather dealing with a unique situation in the Ephesian church, false teachings that were arising out of a cult of dominant women who were infecting the early church with their teaching. And also, Paul was calling passive Christian men to step up and to take their share of spiritual responsibility. A message, by the way, that, well, for 2,000 years, men have needed to hear that. For 2,000 years, men have been too passive in their roles in the Christian church. So that is what we believe is going on here. That's a better understanding of the actual text. And if it were not so, if what we just shared with you were not so, if Paul really was insisting that, that women take no leadership whatsoever in the early church, then isn't that what we would expect to find in the rest of the New Testament? Uh, the absence of women leaders. And in fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. Again and again, from the Gospels to the book of Acts to the epistles of the Apostle Paul, we find women playing prominent roles of leadership in the early church. A reminder, again, this is in the context of a Jewish culture that considered women inferior and a Roman culture that considered women to be chattel, the, the possession of their husbands. We egalitarians, we who believe that women have an equal role in the church, it is the case that we must grapple. We have to wrestle with a couple of hard verses like Pastor Julie has done earlier uh, today. But when we see these hard verses, we say that Scripture must interpret Scripture. That's right. The fact is that those who oppose women in leadership... They have their own wrestling to do with Scripture because they must contend with the scores of biblical examples of women who were, in fact, esteemed in the early church, women who did hold prominent leadership roles. And that context is so important that I am going to survey them with you this morning. So here's that moment when you just got to buckle in because you're going to hear a lot of names, but it will make the point, I think. Let's start, first of all, and most importantly, with Jesus' treatment of women. Because no rabbi had ever treated women the way that Jesus did. He honored them. He was sweet to them. He was kind to them in a way that no rabbi ever had been. And we have all kinds of examples of that, don't we? In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman who was an adulteress as well. 
And that very conversation was kind of a doubly, a doubly scandalous whammy. He shouldn't even been talking to her, and yet he did, and she, in fact, ends up becoming the first Christian evangelist in the Gospels. She goes to her village and leads her village to Christ. Luke tells us that, uh, that as Jesus sat at the table of a, a Pharisee, that he received the worship of a sinful woman who came and poured perfume on his feet. The Pharisee, the host, was horrified that Jesus would allow her to even come close to him. In Mark chapter 5, we read that Jesus welcomed the touch of a woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. She reached out and touched him, and instead of repulse, being repulsed, he said, who is that? He wanted to engage her and embrace her. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus saved the life of, a, of an adulterous woman who was about to be stoned to death because of what she had done. Again and again, Jesus treated women, all women, with unparalleled and unprecedented kindness. He never shamed them. He never put them in their place. This was, in fact, we don't see it now, but at the time it was one of the most revolutionary aspects of his ministry. At a time when rabbis avoided all contact with women because they considered that to be spiritually contaminating. But Jesus was more than just kind to women. He honored them and valued them as his followers. Luke tells us that there was a band of women disciples who followed Jesus from town to town. As a matter of fact, they supported him financially. They were apparently pretty savvy businesswomen as well. The Gospel of John tells us that Mary, who was the sister of Lazarus, sat at the feet of Jesus as he taught. This is language that was normally re reserved for the male disciple of a rabbi. It was unthinkable for a woman to be sitting at the foot of a rabbi, and yet Jesus affirmed her for that. But by far the most revolutionary female disciple of all is a name you will recognize well, Mary Magdalene. All four Gospels testify that it was Mary who discovered the empty tomb of Jesus, Mary who first met the resurrected Christ, Mary who was commissioned by Jesus to take the news of his resurrection to his male disciples who were still in hiding. In fact, it was Mary who was known to the early church as the apostle to the apostles. And since at that time, the testimony of women wasn't even believed. It wasn't even allowed in a court of law. It makes this account all the more incredible, or maybe all the more credible, because if it weren't true, why would anyone make it up? So Jesus honored women disciples, even in a thoroughly paternalistic culture. And then we took turn to the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. And it is full of examples of strong women leaders. For instance, you discover there the remarkable Priscilla. Priscilla was the mentor, a teacher of a hotshot young male preacher named Apollos who still needed some training. Priscilla was also the person who planted the church in Ephesus. This is Priscilla. There is Lydia, who was the church planter in Philippi, the first Euro European church. Philip had four daughters who, we are told, were prophetesses, which means that they actually were preaching, speaking God's word to all of God's people. 
And then there's Tabitha and Rhoda and another Mary and Damaris, and the list goes on and on. The book of Acts is replete with women leaders. But then we say, well, what about Paul? Because he's the one who seems to want to limit women, except in many other places. He doesn't. In Philippians, he affirms Euodia and Syntyche as fellow laborers. He acknowledges Chloe and Nympha as the leaders of their own home churches in Corinth and in Colossae. And perhaps most spectacularly, in, in Romans, in the closing of the book of Romans, he commends Phoebe, a woman, as a deacon. And most shockingly of all, a woman apostle named Junia. Apostle was the highest office in the church. Paul called himself an apostle. And yet in Romans 16, Paul affirms a woman named Junia as an apostle. As a matter of fact, when Paul lists all of the highest spiritual callings in the church in Ephesians 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher, every single one of those positions is found in other parts of the New Testament to be filled by a woman. Now, I know that's a lot of names, a lot of information. I warned you, didn't I? But we need to show you the many, many examples of women leaders who are found in the New Testament scriptures. Now, if you're going to say women are not allowed to be leaders in the church, they must be silent, then you're going to have to contend with the example and the teachings of Jesus and of Luke in the book of Acts, and yes, even of the apostle Paul himself. It's important for you to know that Chapel Hill did not decide to ordain women to leadership just because Chapel Hill wanted to. We did it because we believe the Bible tells us so. We did it because of these biblical reasons. That's why we're egalitarian. And we understand that there are Bible-believing Christians who differ from us on this point. In fact, some of my close friends differ with me on this point. In our own denomination, the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we consider this a non-essential issue. It's a point of doctrine upon which sincere Christians are allowed to disagree. I sit on a committee with our denomination where I know that there are men and women who disagree with me, but we're able to move towards each other in charity and love. Like we said before, we are not here to win an argument or prove a point. But we are here to tell you that's what we believe here at Chapel Hill. That's a part of our DNA, that men and women are called mm -hmm. to the offices of the church, and it is just important that you understand that about us. But more than that, and what we really believe is at the heart of Paul's teaching here, is this. This passage isn't about prohibition, it is about proclamation of the gospel. God has called all of us, men and women. God has gifted all of us, men and women. God wants all of us to bring him worship. God wants all of us to proclaim his gospel. That's why he said, I want men to lift hands in prayer. God has called the men in this church to step up in their role and be participants in worship, to be spiritual leaders, to set a heartfelt example of what genuine worship looks like. That is a proclamation of the gospel. God has called women to use their unique perspective and gifts to all the roles in the church. 
and to join their brothers in leading with grace and humility. It's a shame that the word complementarian has been hijacked by those who say that it means no women leaders. It's actually a pretty good word. The biblical witness suggests that men and women, both created in the image of God, uh, are created to complement each other. We actually go together well, and we work together, and together in our worship and in our leadership and in our service, I think that we provide, we're trying to at least, provide a healthy model to a world that is tearing itself apart along gender lines. Don't you think? There, there needs to be a model for how we can work in unity together. The church of Jesus, following, I think, the example of Jesus, is called to something better than what we're experiencing in our world today. Something higher, something nobler, something sweeter. And that's what we are trying to be here at Chapel Hill. So we thought we'd close our, our sermon and our service by, well, by obeying Paul's admonition to raise our hands in prayer. And not just the men. We want women to raise their hands in prayer. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to pray together. Pastor Julie is going to pray over the men. I'm going to pray over the women. So I invite you, we're going to stand up, and I invite you to raise your hands up and receive this prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for the men of this congregation, the men of this church. I pray that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit, that they would be known in our community for people who know and love you, that in their worship, in their daily lives, that they would be proclaiming the name of Jesus to our community Mm. and to the world. We pray that Gig Harbor might come to know your son Jesus through the proclamation that comes from the men here of Chapel Hill. Would your Holy Spirit fill them this day? Amen. And Lord, I thank you for my sisters in Christ. I thank you for their unique gifts and the perspective that they bring to to life and to faith and to ministry. I'm grateful for them. And I, I pray that your spirit would release more and more of our women to their God-given potential. I pray that you would stir in them their spiritual gifts. I pray that you would unbridle them, that you would unmuzzle them. I pray that you would set them free to believe and to receive that you have called them also to places of ministry and leadership. And may your kingdom thrive Because more of my sisters in this place have been freed to fulfill the destinies for which you created them. And together, Lord, may these men, these women, wholly sold out for you, filled anew with your Holy Spirit, empowered and ingifted, may we make a dent in this community and in our world for Jesus Christ. May we make an advance for the kingdom. May Satan quiver as we march toward him, taking back that which he has sought to steal. Because men and women together are united in that great cause. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus who calls us to all of this. Amen.
there. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Big Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 1030 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.